the 17th century clergyman and scholar, Samuel Bolton, once contrasted mortal man with the infinite, eternal God. Specifically, he once contrasted the hastiness and the unbridled anger of humanity with the patience, mercy, and forbearance of God. Listen to what he said. If but any tender-hearted man should sit one hour in the throne of the Almighty and look down upon the earth as God does continually and see what abominations are done in that hour, he would undoubtedly in the next set all the world on fire. Is that what you would do? If you were sitting on the throne in heaven, would you set all the world on fire? If you saw all that God saw with perfect clarity and destroy all acts of sin, all acts of disobedience to God's law, and all wickedness in one moment. Now, before you dismiss that question and give a Christian Sunday school kind of answer, just slow down for a moment and think. Think about what I just asked. Think about what God sees literally every day. Think about what comes before the eyes of the omniscient Holy One every single second. Now consider what the saints of old say of God. Habakkuk 1 verse 13, the prophet declared God as you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Or Psalm 5, verses 4 and 5, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. So again, think carefully for a minute. Think about the heinousness of sin and all the horrific acts of evil that go on literally every day and every night all over the world. From misdemeanors to felonies. From burglaries to abortions. From racist hate crimes to treacherous acts of slavery and rape. From drug abuse to car accidents that occur because of drunk driving, from lying to stealing, from adultery to abuse, from cold-blooded murder in back alleys to lukewarm churches that Jesus says he will spit out of his mouth if they do not repent and restore their relationship with him. Friends, the list of abominations could go on and on. But before we become cynical and critical of the sinful world out there, we should also think about the sinfulness that's going on right here in our own hearts. 
in our own lives, even just this week. Think about everything God has seen in your life and in my life just this past week. Our thoughts, our fantasies, our daydreaming, our idleness, our words, our deeds. He has seen every temptation we have played with instead of resist and run from. And friends, we may not be as sinful as we could be, but if God removed his his merciful restraint, there is no sin that we would not be capable of committing. Sometimes the only difference between you and I and the person locked up behind prison bars for life is simply the opportunity. We both are born in sin. We both desire sin. And the only difference often is opportunity. See, it's not only just simply a matter of desire. It could simply be the opportunity. Friends, the Bible is replete with the dangers of our own sin. Genesis 4-7 says that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to devour you. In 1 Peter 5, verse 8, we have a spiritual adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But keep thinking with me. Stay with me. Think about the millions upon millions upon millions of people all around the world with every waking moment, live their entire life as if God doesn't exist. They live, they breathe, they serve, they crave, they work, and they worship created things and make them their little gods. And then think of us. Even as followers of Jesus Christ, we can love good things from time to time too much. We can love good things in sinful ways. Friends, how many of us would admit that far too often we love the gifts from God more than the giver himself? Friends, the Bible calls that idolatry. Little idols that we set upon the shelf in our lives. Even the Apostle John knew this about Christians he wrote to on the latter half of the first century. Do you remember the last verse of 1 John? It's a very small verse. I feel like sometimes we just go on to 2 John because it's so quick and it's the last one. But listen again, 1 John 5, verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's a good verse to memorize this week. Little children... That's us. Keep or protect yourself from idols. What are idols? Idols are whatever we love and care more about our relationship with God. Idols are whatever we love and care more about than our relationship with God. Friend, do you know what the idols are in your life this morning? In a very real sense, if we are willing to disobey God's clear commands in Scripture in order to get what we want or think what we deserve, friends, that's an idol. If we go around God's word because we're impatient, 
We think we know better. We deserve something that God says no to or says not now to. That's an idol. Friends, these are not inconsequential things. Every single one of us have sin touching every area of our life. Even this morning, there are those among us who are chronic idolaters. They see nothing wrong with loving and caring about other things more than God. And friends, we should be asking ourselves, what are the idols that God's revealing in our life? And friends, these these matters are important not just about what's in our life today, but what's happened in our past. Friends, we all have a testimony. We all have a past. We all have a story. So friends, what's your story? What has the history of your life told us about your faith in God? Has your faith in God seemed to go upward with every year? Or has your faith uh, seemed to be more like a nauseating roller coaster full of ups and downs? Has your obedience to God been more like an interstate highway, straight and long, but consistently going forward? Or has it felt like a rolling hills around steep ledges and riding down country roads because you're lost and you got off the narrow way and following Jesus? Friends, we all have a history. Think for a moment if we had a time machine. If you could go back in your life right now, And pick a moment, pick a month, pick a season of time that right now you could take a heavenly eraser and remove it from your life. What part of your past would you change? We all have a checkered past. We have done things in our life we're proud of, and we have done many things in our life we are not proud of. Friends, regardless of what we've done and haven't done, we all have a story, a story about our sin and a story about the faithfulness of God, a story about our rebellion and a story about God's mercies that outmatch our rebellion. So friends, let me ask you again. What does the history of your life tell us about how God has been patient and merciful and faithful to you? What does the history of our church tell us about how God has been patient and merciful and faithful towards us? Today we turn to the next chapter in our current sermon series where we learn about the history of Israel and their present need to have ongoing confession and true worship to God. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 229. Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Please follow with me. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting 
and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, Kanai, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbadaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord. You alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God, who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise. For you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters, by a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day, by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down from Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath, and you commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness." pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years 
You sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet, when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them, and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom, and amid your great goodness that you gave them, 
And in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. This is God's word. In the book of Nehemiah, we began chapter 8 a couple of weeks ago. The people of Israel gathering, much like a gathering like this, they assemble together as one man under the teaching and reading of the Word of God. After seeing God's mighty hand help them complete the construction of the wall around the city, that's chapters 1 to 7, they were beginning to see the beautiful fruit of being a united people who loved God. A people united with the same heart. A people united with the same mind, being in one accord to do the will of God together in their lives. By God's grace, a once scattered and aimless people now had a unifying commitment and a unifying priority to sit under the authority of the book. This remnant of people had a like-minded desire to be washed, to be cleansed, to be transformed by the reading and exposition of the Word of God. Under Nehemiah's guidance and Ezra's skilled teaching ability, the Lord had stoked a flame of revival. And really over the last two weeks, this is what Nehemiah chapter 8 has been all about. This one centralized truth. God works in his people through his word. God works in his people, through his word. So friends, let me ask you, if you're wondering this morning why you're not growing spiritually, if you feel like you've been in a dry season, or you feel like you've taken like one step forward and five steps back, ask yourself the question, how much of my time, how much of my thought life is being immersed in the word of God? How attentive am I when I'm hearing God's word preached on Sundays? Friends, this is the heavenly bath for our dirtiness. This is how he renews our minds. This is why it's important to regularly gather each Lord's Day. That's why we should be constantly and eagerly excited and hungry to sit under the word on Sunday, on Tuesday night and Wednesday morning for women's Bible study, And then the equipping class and men's Bible study for the children's equipping hour. Every waking moment we can hear from God, our souls need it. Friends, ask yourself the question. Have you found yourself drawing near more and more to the book? Or have you found yourself pushing it away? I'm too tired. I'm too busy. I'm just lazy. Friends, transformation happens when our lives are immersed in the book. God works in his people through his word. 
Now, last week, what did we find out? Well, the people of God studied God's word, and then they obeyed it. They found out that there were things that they were neglecting out of sheer ignorance and out of raw rebellion. And so through the course of hours of study, they discovered some important things that they were earnest now to obey. And maybe you recall last week, it was one of the feast days and the feast weeks that they had been neglecting for some time in Israel, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a week-long feast celebrated with gladness and joy, much like us combining Thanksgiving and Christmas all at one time and inviting only the people you really enjoy the most during those holidays. That's really what the Feast of Tabernacles was like once a year. It was a week that began and ended with reverence, but it was a week full of days of joyful remembrance. The feast was designed by God, if they would keep it faithfully, to remember how the joy of the Lord would be our strength no matter what we will ever face in our lives. But Nehemiah chapter 9 opens us up to a different day for a different occasion, but in the same month as the Feast of Booths. Look with me there at verse 1. You'll notice there that the next gathering of God's people took place on the 24th day of this month. As you may recall from last week's sermon, this was the Jewish month of Tishri, the seventh month. It was the same month where the Feast of Trumpets would begin the month. On the day 10 was the Day of Atonement. And then really around day 15 or so was the Feast of Booths. But this time, two days after this celebratory feast, a time of rejoicing, a time of gladness, a time of thanksgiving, two days later, this gathering would not be largely characterized by joy and gladness. Let's just say it took on a different feel than the previous week. The temperature in the room was a little different than it was the previous time. Look with me now, starting in verses 1 to 3. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. So what did the people of God do next? As we find out again, they're in no hurry. They're not trying to beat the Methodists to lunch or anytime soon. A quarter of a day? A quarter of a day? We're just talking a long time, folks. Kids, that's a lot of cartoons and a lot of recess time. A lot of hours were given once again to reading, listening to the exposition of the Word of God. But what did they do this time on the 24th day of the month? When they gathered this time under the book, how did they respond to God? Well, there's three things in this opening section that really frame the rest of the sermon. So if you're looking to take notes on the front end, it's going to be where you're going to get those points. The rest are going to be more summaries and exhortations. So up front, let me give you those points. Three things we notice in the first several verses. Number one, 
They humbled themselves before the presence of God. They humbled themselves before the presence of God. Number two, they pursued holiness in their relationships. They pursued holiness in their relationships. And number three, they responded to God's revelation of himself and his works with true spiritual worship. They responded to God's revelation of himself and his works with true spiritual worship. First, notice how they humbled themselves before the presence of God. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, The people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Now, sometimes fasting in sackcloth in the Bible was associated with circumstances surrounding grief towards the death. So today in our modern, you know, American context, that's not as common. We might wear black. We might wear some kind of veil. There might be something to cover up tears, like sunglasses, so you can't see the tears when you're by the burial site. These are all appropriate ways of showing grief and respect for those who are mourning the loss of someone. But in Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in Jesus' day, it would not have been uncommon for you to see this kind of garb and this expression at a funeral or a burial site. I think, for example, Genesis 37, verse 34. Jacob is tearing his garments and putting on sackcloth and mourning when he thought his son Joseph had been killed. But friends, in other times in Scripture, wearing sackcloth was also a sign of mourning over sin and repentance from sin. Think of the people of Nineveh that Jonah didn't want to repent. Jonah didn't want that ministry assignment. Jonah said, go to a different seminary. I don't want to go to that church. God sent him, and it says in Jonah 3, 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. A sackcloth, just to give you an imagery here, was a coarse cloth, normally of black goat's hair. It was often a band or kilt tied around the waist. It was usually worn next to the skin, and sometimes folks wore it the entire night. They slept in it for days on end. They wouldn't even change their clothes. The fasting would have been abstinence from food for a period of time, sometimes a day, sometimes for multiple days. The purpose of fasting was designed for extended focus on prayer and concentration on God. But what does it mean to humble yourself before God? Is it when someone encourages you after you've done something? Hey, good job, brother. Don't praise me. Praise the Lord. No, that's just weird and odd. Just take a compliment and move on. Thank God, but don't be weird. Does humbling yourself mean beating yourself up, punching yourself in the face, hitting yourself, making yourself inflict punishment? No. The Dark Ages and Roman Catholicism already shown that that was not true piety. Is wearing sackcloth and fasting? You know, if I go to the you know, nearby thrift store and find sackcloth, and I begin fasting this week, is that what pleases God? Is that what makes me humble? 
Friends, humility is not first and foremost about sackcloth clothing or how much food you don't eat. Humility is a work of God's rescuing grace in the heart of a prideful sinner. Humility is a work of God's rescuing grace in the heart of a prideful sinner. Humility before God occurs when we begin seeing God in his greatness more and more. And we begin thinking of ourselves and our greatness less and less. So you want to see a humble person? Find someone who hasn't gotten over their salvation. You want to find a humble person? They get much more excited of God getting glory than they do. Friends, that's what humility looks like. God becomes so much bigger in their thoughts and in their affections and how they want to live their life, and they become much smaller. Humility occurs when a sinner recognizes that their sin is first and foremost an offense against a holy God. Humility is often demonstrated through a sinner depending on God through prayer. That means a prayerless person in one way or another is going to be feeding a prideful ego. We often don't pray not because we're too busy, but because we're too self-sufficient. Let me say that again. We often don't pray not because we're too busy, but because we're too self-sufficient. We're not broken and needy enough of God's rescuing grace. For the Israelites, they were putting that ugly, self-centered pride and expressing that through that ugly sackcloth clothing as they were humbling themselves before the mighty hand of God and fasting to concentrate more on him. They humbled themselves before the presence of God. Number two, they pursued holiness in their relationships. They pursued holiness in their relationships. Look at me, verse 2. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Uh, You notice there in verse 2, we read that they separated themselves from foreigners. Uh, It could just be translated really non-Jews those who were outside of the nation of Israel. In fact, the Apostle Paul, you don't need to turn there, but you can bookmark this. He actually picks up on this language, writing to a church about the importance of Christians in churches having relationships that are spiritually good and holy and separating yourself from those who would make those relationships unholy. Listen to 2 Corinthians 6. Starting in verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord is Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, and he quotes from the Old Testament. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, 
Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Uh, Friends, you've heard me say this a ton here. Jeff always reminds me. I think you've said that before. I do. I just repeat myself. Show me your friends. I'll show you your future. Show me the leaders you look up to. I'll show you where you're going to be at spiritually probably five to ten years from now. A student or a disciple is not above their teacher, but in time they will become like them. Friends, it is so important to surround yourself with godly people who spur you on to holy living. And here for Nehemiah's day, this was an act of obedience. They separated themselves. They removed themselves. They took certain events and certain people out of their schedule, out of their calendar. They no longer ran with those people anymore. They no longer laughed at the same jokes by the water cooler at work. They no longer commented on the chain email when you know it was a little off color. They were separating themselves from that. Friends, that's what was going on in Nehemiah's day. For quite some time, Israel had fallen into idolatry and adopted some of the pagan lifestyles of the non-Jews around them. And they were trying to create their own kind of religion. You know, take a little bit of Jesus over here for us, a little bit of law over here, and then let's put a big old soup bowl of paganism over here and selfishness over here, and let's just have a good old time. Listen, there's only one God. There is only one Savior. Christianity is an exclusive relationship with the one true and living God. You cannot come to God on your own terms. You have to come on his. We cannot add to or take away from what God has said is true. Friends, they were living lives by mixing themselves with ungodly company, and they were a stench in the nostrils of the Lord. Hypocrisy, adultery, idolatry, and the list went on. But here in Nehemiah, look what they're doing. They were repenting. No more blame shifting. No more making excuses. No more I'll get around to that getting serious with God thing when I get older. They separated themselves and removed these influences from their lives because the God who called them is a holy, holy, holy God. And not only were they separating themselves from these unholy relationships, they were also confessing their sins. Their own sins, but also the sins of descendants who were largely responsible for the exile. Friends, all of us are held responsible for our own actions. Let me say that again. Some of us need to have a little bit of guilt removed from us because we think we're responsible for other people's actions and their sins. All of us will be held responsible for our own actions. You and I will each give an account of ourselves to God. We will not be judged for other people's sins. However, if we are in covenant with others, like a marriage or a church or some other commitment-based relationship, friends, our sins affect other people. Our sins affect other people. We are responsible before God if we lead people into sin or if our sin brings reproach on the name of Christ in a larger group. That's why Jesus addresses the seven churches in Asia Minor in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 
like Jason read earlier for the church at Laodicea. Did you notice he doesn't point out any one person? He speaks to the church. You know the verse that's ripped out of context, Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. If you let him come in, first of all, it's a terrible song. It's cheesy. It doesn't make any sense. Number two, Jesus ain't knocking on anybody's door. It's a church he was knocking on. A group of Christians. And Jesus was saying this. Listen, I wish you were cold or you were hot, but because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. There is no middle ground with Jesus. You're either for him or against him. Churches are either all in on Jesus or he will spit them out of his mouth. Oh, friends, I pray, I pray that some churches in the River Valley would heed this call before it is way too late. And friends, we at CCBC should heed the same warning. Friends, when Jesus addresses churches, he calls all of us to take ownership for our own sin. And there should be a sense we're confessing the sins of others. Oh God, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us if we as a church have given you a bad name. Friends, our worship gatherings at CCBC should be marked by joy and thankfulness to God. That's what we learned last week. And yet, when we go before the Lord confessing our sins, there ought to be some gravity, some density, some depth to our weekly gatherings. Friends, you know why some people come here and they are like blown away by a long prayer? It's because their church they're coming from is shallow. They don't pray. Those pastors care more about TV time and not having any silence than they do taking people to the throne of grace. Friends, you don't need a new small group or a new program to work on your prayer life. You need to have it modeled up here. Friends, pray that CCBC would model that for other churches. Pray that we would never lose sight of humbling ourselves before God. Friends, they were confessing their sins in a corporate lament. They were taking it seriously and soberly. Oh, friends, may God bless this church that we would be marked by joy and thanksgiving and a sense of seriousness and sobriety. The Almighty is listening. The Almighty is with us. Let's sing and let's pray like we believe it. Number three, they pursued they responded to God's revelation of himself and his works with true spiritual worship. Look at verses 3 to 5. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, Kenani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, Pethahiah, said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Uh, friends, we're seeing again what happens when God's people are being led by faithful leaders. Back in Nehemiah 8, the spiritual leaders, the Levites and Ezra, are leading God's people in corporate worship. What did they do? Was there smoke? Were there lasers? They read God's word. They 
taught God's word, and they led out in prayer and praise back to God. They did the simple things that matter the most to God. And they helped God's people do the same. To my non-Christian friend, why should you praise the Lord this morning? Why should you confess your sins to God? Kids, why should you praise the Lord? Why should you confess your sins to God? Members of CCBC, why should we praise the Lord? And why should we confess our sins to God? Well, friends, in verses 6 to 31, we have many reasons to do just that. You see, in verses 6 to 31, we see a recounting of a story. The recounting of a history. A history that begins in the very beginning of it all. God's creation. And then we see the story of how God would form a nation to be a distinct, set-apart, and special people that God would bless in order to be a blessing to the nations. Friends, if you're not familiar with your Bible, that's okay. I just want to give a gentle encouragement to all of us. It's good to read the book of Romans, but you need to know what Leviticus says too. It's wonderful to know Ephesians, but you need to know what Numbers says too. It's fantastic to know the Gospel of John, but it's really, really important that you get Genesis too. Do you know why? What we're about to see, this 30,000-foot flyover is a recounting of the entire Old Testament. You see, they didn't need every detail. You know why? Because they knew the book. They had heard the stories taught to them. They had heard them, though at times they forgot them. They knew all of what God had been doing. They were just forgetful at times. Friends, here's my gentle encouragement on Bible reading. If it's hard, ask for help. If you're tired, keep at it. Read all of the Bible all the time. Read all of the Bible all the time. We don't want to be half-baked Christians. We need Old and New Testament. We need law. We need prophets. We need the writings. We need the epistles. We need it all. God gave us a buffet. Let's feast on it. Amen? Amen. All right. Here we go. Here is the 30,000-foot delta flyover of Nehemiah 9. In verses 6 to 8, we're reminded of the fact that everything came into being not by evolution or accident, but by an all-knowing, personal, all-powerful creator God. It begins there. At the same time, this all-powerful God called a weak, sinful man named Abram to be the progenitor, there's a good word to have, or the first person, from which the promised offspring of God's people would come. You can read more about our covenant-making and covenant-keeping creator by reading the whole book of Genesis. Genesis chapters 1 to 50. Moving on, verses 9 to 15, we read about how God saw the afflictions of his enslaved people in Egypt. And now he compassionately drew near to them to deliver them from Pharaoh's tyranny. This section here recounts the mighty acts of God parting the Red Sea, destroying the Egyptians, providing a covenant mediator in Moses who gave them his law, and then promising to lead them to a land full of milk and honey, a land of blessing and security where joy would be endless because God would be their God, God's people 
under God's rule in God's place. You can read more about that, about our compassionate and saving God in Exodus chapters 1 to 24. Exodus chapters 1 to 24. And then in verses 16 to 21, we get a summary of the cyclical sin patterns, just like many of us, all of us rather, of how Israel rebelled against God and the leaders God gave them. They doubted God so much that they told God and they told Moses, we want somebody else. We're going to go back to Egypt. It was better in Egypt than it is in the wilderness. I don't know what's happened to this madman Moses, but we don't want him anymore. Friends, they were a people that lacked nothing, and yet they appreciated nothing. Friends, you want to know the mark of a people that is about to walk away from God in your life? God has met every need you've ever had and you appreciate none of it. Friends, count your blessings. Name them one by one every day. Thank God for every good and perfect gift that comes from above. It's one of the ways that God reminds us, I have given you everything you've ever needed. It's not been on your timetable, but it's always been on time. You can read more about this waywardness and lack of appreciation from Israel. Uh, really, in the whole book of Numbers, to be honest with you, the 40-year wilderness years. Have, have some coffee when you start that, by the way. Verses 22 to 25, we see the generous and benevolent care of God to bless his people. Uh, we see him fulfill his promise, right? He told Abram, called him Abraham, I'm going to give your descendants a land. Well, what do we see happen? They bring them into the promised land. God destroyed some of their enemies, conquered kings for them, gave them a land of security and blessing, caused their families to multiply and their farmland to be fruitful. Uh, you can read more about this in the first several chapters of Deuteronomy and then chapters 1 to 12 in Joshua. The first few chapters of Deuteronomy and the first 12 chapters of Joshua. And then in verses 26 to 31, we see once again the cyclical pattern of sinful rebellion that would occur in that 40-ness, 40, like they did in the 40 wilderness years. It gets repeated basically throughout the Old Testament. So if you start in the book of Judges, it is like a daytime talk show. It is drama after drama, face plant after face plant, with a few bright hopes and then more drama. Judges is wild. It is the kind of book that you're going to have to maybe be patient when you read it to your children because there's going to be some things at 10 o'clock at night you're not going to be able to answer your 8-year-old. It just gets a little odd. But anyway, it, things are really bad. It's a roller coaster throughout the whole Old Testament from Judges to Malachi. And you know what God does? He disciplines his people. He says, you want to go after those nations? You want to go trust in those kings? You want to mix a soup bowl of religion and forsake me? I'll give you what your heart wants. I will give you over to your enemies, and you will find out how good you've had it all along. Friends, God's loving discipline hurts. It's supposed to. To the carnal, unregenerate, deceived church member, their heart will be hardened to God's discipline. To the humble, 
spirit-filled, child of the living God, it will be painful in the moment, but it will later yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Friends, if you want to summarize the whole Old Testament, it's this. God is holy and he always keeps his promises. Mankind is sinful and we will always reap what we sow if we don't repent. And no human leader can ultimately fix us. No mortal, sinful human leader can change us. We need a perfect Savior that only God can provide. In fact, the whole passage in Nehemiah 9 is pointing to us, like billboards on the interstate, the need for a perfect Savior, the need for mighty hands to wrestle down rebels like you and I and give us new hearts. You see, the God who created the whole world is the same God who numbers the stars and names each one of them. He's the same God who called an old man, Abraham, and his old and barren wife, Sarah, to be the progenitors of the nation of Israel. He is the same God who condescended upon Mount Sinai to deliver his perfect commandments through his servant, Moses. This is the same God who fed the Israelites with bread from heaven and water from rocks and desert places. This is the same God that sent prophets to his people to warn them. This is the same God who destroyed powerful kings like Pharaoh, Sion, and Og. This is the same God who split the Red Sea. This is the same God who provided the land of Canaan, a land full of milk and honey. Friends, this God, this creator, covenant-making, covenant-keeping, compassionate, and saving God is the same God you and I serve this morning. This isn't some old version of God. He is who he is, and he will always be who he is. This God is our God. He is the God who is sovereign over the whole checkered history of Israel, and friends, he is sovereign over the checkered history of your life. He is sovereign over it all, the bad, the bad, and the really bad, every single bit of it. He is sovereign, he is sovereign, he is sovereign. You see, at the appointed time, God would condescend one day to a different level. He wouldn't just descend upon a mountain in a cloud or in a burning bush. Friends, one day he would condescend and put on human flesh. He became a man, the God-man, the man Christ Jesus. The eternal Son of God became flesh like one of us and dwelt among us. To fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah, he was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is Jesus Christ. He is greater than Moses. He's more courageous than Joshua. He is more powerful than all the judges combined to save a wayward people. Friends, he's not just a loaf of bread. He is the bread from heaven. He's not a cup of water from a rock. He is the living water. Friends, Jesus did not come to be just simply a commander of some earthly army. Friends, he is God's king. He is the anointed one who came to deliver us, rescue us from our enemies of sin, Satan, and the present evil age. Friends, he is the only one 
that can overcome the grave, and he has, and cause us to overcome the grave and become like him. Friends, it is Christ and in Christ alone that we come to God in prayer. He is our sympathetic high priest who cares about our distress, who knows about our checkered history, who knows about our inconsistency and loves us still. How do you know he loves you that much? Because he left heaven to come down on earth and he hung on a criminal's punishment device and he bore the righteous indignation, the just hatred of the wrath of Almighty God, the wrath that should smite the whole earth because God is holy, instead fell upon Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He never sinned, and he never will. Friends, the new covenant that Christ has purchased is sealed with his blood. One of the promises of the new covenant is that he will cause us to walk in his statutes and he will remember our sins no more. Hebrews 8 verse 12, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Jesus Christ is Abraham's offspring through whom the whole world will now be blessed, Galatians 3.16. And if you turn from your sins and trust in this perfect Savior, my friend, you can become a son or daughter of God. You become one of Abraham's offspring because you belong to Christ. Galatians 3, 23 and following. Back to Nehemiah 9. In verses 32 to 37, you can just kind of glance down. This is where they stop recounting the history and now start getting real with God with, okay, God, I got a need. You know, here's Wednesday night prayer list, Sunday night prayer list. They're going to God for a request. We find them making an urgent plea. Let me just summarize that urgent plea. Their prayer request is basically this. God, show us mercy. God, show us mercy. We are slaves under Persian rule. We have acted wickedly. We have been sinful. We have deserved what has come upon us. Please, Lord, please. We deserve your righteous wrath. But please show us mercy. Is that where you're at today? Maybe you've made a decision recently that is haunting you. If anyone knew what you said or did or looked at, you would be humiliated. It's made it hard to come to church this morning. God, show me mercy. Maybe your marriage is a wreck. You're wondering if it's even going to make it another year. God, show me mercy. 
My kids won't listen to me. They don't respect me. In fact, they don't want anything to do with me. God, show me mercy. I'm being persecuted for my faith. It's getting really hard. God, show me mercy. Finances are getting really tight. I don't know how I'm going to pay the next bill. God, show me mercy. A dark cloud of depression has been hovering over me for quite some time, and I can't shake it. God, show me mercy. A paralyzing fit of fear and anxiety, it won't leave me. God, show me mercy. A besetting sin has raised its ugly head again in my life, and I don't know how to defeat it. Oh, God, show me mercy. A chronic illness makes sleeping at night torture. I can barely get eight hours ever. Show me mercy. Friends, where are you at? In what part of your life has God brought you to the place where you need God's mercy? Friends, Nehemiah 9 is a wonderful example of what happens when a humbled people pray. This is the heartbeat of someone who is pliable and teachable under God's word. This is the sound of a people that do not want to relive the past nor repeat the failings of the past. This is a people, though, who look to the past and they cling to God's faithfulness, God's mercy, and God's patience from the past. So as Christians, how should we think about the past? As Christians, how should we think about the past? Well, with each year that I live, I often hear this from those who are older than me. Life goes by fast. And if I knew back in the day what I know today, boy, what would I change? Should we let our past defeat us or define us? Should we just ignore the past and then think it's insignificant? Or should we let the past teach us something? Beloved, God's wisdom would tell us not to relive the past or live in the past. But we should learn from the past. We should learn from the failures of others. We should learn from the failures of our own life. We should research the history of the state of Arkansas and Fort Smith and learn from our own community's failures. We should study church history and learn from the errors of believers who've gone before us. We should study the Word of God, read all the Bible all the time, and learn from the failures of saints who've gone before us. We should learn from the failures, mistakes, and sins of family members and friends. Friends, we should take every opportunity we can to examine and confess our own sin and thank God for his loving discipline in our life. Otherwise, we could fall into the trap of the fool. Proverbs 26, 11, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool 
who what? Repeats his folly. But friends, from the past, we should also learn about how God deals with foolish, sinful, stiff-necked, rebellious, inconsistent, lukewarm people just like us. We can look back through the pages of Scripture time and time and time again. We are great sinners, and he is a great Savior. Friends, if you lack joy in this great salvation this morning, friends, be reminded of how good and gracious God has been to you. Look to Jesus. He is the proof that God loves you, and he's not done with you. Beloved, what did we learn about God in Nehemiah 9? Listen again. In verses 1 to 5, God is worthy to be worshipped above everything in our lives. In verses 6 to 8, he's the creator of all things that keeps every promise he's ever made to his people. In verses 9 to 15, God saves and sustains. In verses 16 to 21, God forgives and does not forsake. In verses 22 to 25, he gives us more than we deserve, and he gets glory when we delight in his good gifts. In verses 26 to 31, even when we rebel, he is ready to forgive if you would only but come. Beloved, there is not a moment in our lives where we should not cling to the faithfulness, forbearance, and mercies of God. God has shown wretched sinners like us mercy, mercy, mercy. Grace upon grace upon grace. How should God's mercy towards you and towards me affect how we treat other sinners in our life. Jesus said in Luke 6, 35 and 36, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And beloved, the more we learn about God's goodness, it should cause us to run to God's arms for mercy. Friends, remember, it's God's kindness, God's mercy, God's forbearance that should lead us to repentance. Romans 2 verse 4. How do we cling to God, though? How do we cling to God's mercy and repentance? Friends, look what we saw in Nehemiah 9. It begins by clinging to God through prayer. Prayers of praise, prayers of confession, prayers of thanksgiving, and prayers of supplication. Ah, that's what we do here as a church every Lord's Day. And what should be marking our lives throughout the week as well. Friends, do we want to behold more and more of God and his greatness? then we must begin thinking less and less of our own greatness. We must humble ourselves before the presence of God. Do we want God's best in our relationships, in our parenting, in our marriages, in the membership of this church? 
we must be discerning and wise about those who we are friends with, who we choose to date, who we spend the bulk of our time with, who we raise up as leaders in this church. We must pursue holiness in all our relationships. And friends, do we want some depth and gravity to our worship gatherings each Lord's Day? Then we must confess our sins to God and worship him in spirit and in truth. Author Mark Jones says, we are at our best when we are worshiping the triune God. We are at our worst when we are worshiping anything or anyone else. Friends, that means we should take heed to what Ezra and the Levites did. We should bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be his glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Members of CCBC, we should confess our sins to God, and we should worship God in spirit and in truth. Why? Because through many dangers, toils and snares, we have already come. Tis grace hath brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. What does the history of my life and your life tell us about how patient how merciful and how faithful God has been to us. May God's goodness, may God's patience lead us to rejoice and lead us to confession and repentance into the arms of God. Let's pray. Father, you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Lord, if we were on the throne in heaven, we would not have that kind of patience with sinners like us. Father, we praise you this morning that you have not smited us, you have not destroyed us, you have not caused us to die and be sent to an eternal punishment, but you have mercifully saved us those of us who are putting our faith in Christ. Lord, we pray even this morning, if any of us are seeking to be tempted towards walking away from you, oh God, send a brother or sister to speak the truth and love to them. Lord, we pray that your loving discipline, though painful, would bring them back to you and to this fold. Lord, we pray now as we sing this last song that we would remember how far we've come because of your grace towards us in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.